Welcome to my podcast about fearful and feral dogs. I'm your host, Julie Hart, and I've had 14 years of working with fearful and feral dogs in dog rescue and with client dogs. I'm calling this podcast, I subtitled this podcast, Scratching the Surface, because working with fearful and feral dogs takes quite some time to get proficient at it. However, it's a very rewarding journey for In this podcast, we simply scratch the surface on many subtopics that go into rehabilitating fearful and feral dogs, such as how to earn trust, animal welfare and fearful dogs, medication, and Q&A from some of my listeners. To find out more information, please visit my website, fearfuldogtraining.com. And scroll down, and there you can see options about online learning, upcoming workshops, and I'm also starting a subscription service for $15 a month where we will deep dive into each one of these subtopics. My guest today is Becky Davis. She holds a master's degree in education and worked as a master level educator and behavior specialist in K-12 schools before transitioning to working with pets professionally 10 years ago. After rescuing her first street cat in 2008, Becky began rescuing and rehabilitating homeless pets, including feral cats and dogs, which became the foundation of the work she does now as a relationship-based behavioral dog trainer. In this podcast, we're going to talk about fearful and feral dog rehabilitation, kind of as a once-over lightly, because it's a very deep subject that takes a while to become proficient in. We're going to also use Becky's background to kind of help fill in some holes that there are in research about dogs and rehabbing them. I have Becky Davis joining us. Hi. She's worked with us and also came out to New Mexico, so she got to see some of the dogs I work with firsthand. And Becky, tell us a little bit about your background with humans as well as dogs. Sure. Thank you so much for having me, Julie. I am originally a special educator um, and I worked in schools for many years and was a behavior specialist with students with disabilities and did a lot of behavior modification work with children, human children. (laughs) Over the past 10 years, I have been working with dogs professionally, kind of transitioned out of working with small humans into working with animals, work a lot with fearful dogs also, a lot of fear aggression, and do a lot of behavioral modification work, which is how I met you. Yep. And we started talking and you came to a workshop and that's about it. Yep. And you guys helped me, you and Phyllis helped me a lot with my fearful and very difficult dog, Boone. The rest, as they say, is history. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to ask you more about the human behavior work that you did and like what kind of similarities you see and what differences later. I think that would be really interesting because when I try and do research about this topic, there isn't a lot to go on. In a lot of other books, they include a lot of research about humans. I mean, also a lot of experiments done with rodents and things like that kind of give us some other information to fall back on. The reason I wanted to do this podcast was because there isn't a lot of information out there. 
And I see a lot of people posting on social media asking questions for help with severely fearful or feral dogs. Since I'm only one person, (laughs) you know, I want to share my knowledge and get it out there so we can help more dogs and people that are living with these dogs. I actually just recently, I went to look up books on fearful dogs because I have not read a lot of books written by others about fearful dogs. And there were only maybe about eight. And then on feral dogs, guess how many there are? Zero. Zero. Yeah. Which I find amazing because obviously there's a lot of need for it because people are asking questions. And, you know, even if you don't live in a place like New Mexico where they're, they live, these dogs are being transported by rescues all over the United States. And so people are getting feral dogs and fearful dogs as client dogs. I think it will affect a wide variety of people. And then the other thing I think think that learning about these types of dogs has really helped me be able to train more quote unquote normal dogs. Maybe just kind of more normal dogs with some reactivity towards other dogs, or maybe they're afraid of a certain object, or maybe they don't like the husband in the house so much, or some visitors scare them or whatever. You can take this knowledge and apply it to less severe cases. A lot of people are like, but I don't work with feral dogs. It's like, well, it's kind of the the essence of what a dog is. It's It's a dog with all the human interaction and stripped away, and you're dealing with just the dog. That's kind of why I wanted to do this. And I think that most dog trainers, if they haven't yet, um, will start seeing feral dogs in client homes more more and more. I -hmm. just did a rehab on a dog who is 100% American village dog was rescued off of the streets in the Caribbean at two weeks old. Oh, wow. Uh Uh-huh. And given to a family with children, he landed his first bite around nine months Mm -hmm. and is tremendously fearful treating him in a natural way. Right. Treating him as the natural dog that he is, as opposed to kind of our what we've developed as our expectations in modern society of (laughs) the roles that dogs should play maybe has changed everything for that dog. And for he's doing so much better, but they didn't call me and say, Hey, I have a feral dog. Right. Right. They didn't know. Yeah. And maybe we should talk about what is a feral dog versus a fearful dog real quick. I mean, Um, that's one of the questions that we got, right? It is. Yeah. I mean, sometimes they overlap too. Like you can have a fearful dog that is not feral, that's been around people and maybe it's fearful because it's been mistreated or even it's a genetic component. But then you can have a feral dog who a lot of people assume is fearful and submissive, but they are not. They can be, but not always. But then you have these kind of crossovers And I I imagine we saw some of that in New Mexico when we took our drive around, right? (laughs) With dogs that kind of kind of have a home and they're fed there, but they don't really live as pets. And I'm not sure how much social interaction they have with people. And then there's a lot of dogs who are street dogs, but then you know, people leave food out for them. So there's all these kind of mixes. And I will say, like. I imagine there's difference in genetics in each location that this happens. The Caribbean may have their own genetic pool where the dogs tend to act a certain way. 
And then New Mexico kind of has its own pool. I actually did a really interesting Zoom lesson the other day with a feral Malinois. Wow. Like, how did that happen? Right? Likely that dog was sold to someone beautiful dog at some point. And did he escape? Or was the dog too much for them? Like somehow he was abandoned and then became feral. You also have dogs in the feral category that maybe have always been feral, like my dog Tipton. Like we know for a fact that people know that he was born on the streets. Like we know where he came from. He was never in a home. And then you have dogs like this Malinois who probably was an own dog at some point. And then how did he become feral? They trapped him and now he's definitely feral. And the differences between his communication and the dogs that I see in New Mexico was really interesting. I won't go into a huge amount of detail now and probably because of his breed, right? Like the dogs I work with are very mixed breeds and he's a purebred dog bred for a purpose. It was a good challenge for me to kind so of there's do all, something a little different. Yeah. So his genetics weren't naturally and selected. Feral. I mean, at the workshops over the years, we've had in a natural dogs who environment. are yeah, yeah, very asocial that is an interesting case and study. feral. And then there's dogs that want to be social and feral, you know, and, and in fearful dogs too, I, I think you know, you have to, as with any case, look at the individual dog in the spectrum that they're in. They're not the same. And there's so many feral dogs. It's it's crazy. There's not a lot of <laughs> knowledge, right? Like I think on the Navajo reservation, it's estimated there's 250,000 dogs. Oh, wow. And probably ha- at least half of those are feral. Right. They may be being fed somewhere, but that might might be about it. One of the kind of holes I've gone into is I did a a quick like online certification about animal welfare. And it's mostly I did it because of my involvement with shelters and things. But it was very interesting because animal welfare kind of you want to take the dog or the animal and allow them to do as much of their natural behaviors as possible. And that got me thinking about dog rehab and dog training and how much of that natural behavior we don't weave into that rehab or training process. Looking at it from an animal welfare perspective, there's a lot of improvement we could make about how we treat fearful and feral dogs while they're being rehabilitated. I think a lot of times they're mostly very isolated kept in a cage. They hide in a corner in a house. People are afraid to take them places. They're afraid to put them under stress to get improvement. And then what are we doing? Like we're basically taking away all their natural behaviors. I approach it from trying to get the dog to do those natural behaviors as soon as possible. How does that like play into the the kids that you used to work with? Oh, I mean, there are a lot of there are a lot of parallels, you know. Um, one thing that we talk a lot about in education is Maslow's hierarchy of needs. 
it's basically a pyramid, right? And we have like really basic needs like food and shelter, right? And safety and security are sort of at the base of the pyramid, building up to uh, like the top of the pyramid is basically learning, right? Mm-hmm. So I think that that ties in, <laughs> you know, it's yeah. very interconnected with the work that that we do with dogs, because if a dog doesn't feel safe, if their basic needs aren't being met, if like you're saying, they're not being allowed to engage in any of their natural behaviors, they cannot learn. Yeah. They cannot learn new things in that environment. That's just like psychology. It's, you know, how brains and learning systems operate. If you're in a state of not knowing where your next meal comes from, not knowing if you have safety, not feeling secure in your environment or having, if you're, if you're a dog or a child having trust in whoever is supposed to be keeping you safe or your partner is, or who's caring for you, right. You, you cannot learn. You can't make long-term learning happen in that environment. Mm. Yeah. And the first thing I always try to do is to build trust and to make that dog feel safe, which I'm sure with kids it's much more difficult actually (laughs) there's so much more but with dogs that building trust can happen very quickly but also it takes a while so that's kind of a contradiction but you know just the way that you approach the dog that very first time and how you enter the the kennel or how you put the leash on which direction you face, where your eyes are, all of that is very important to telling the dog that you're not there to hurt them. And so that's kind of the first stage. I think a lot of people want to rush this, the foundation process, which as you're saying in the pyramid is the trust and safety. That is like the widest part of the pyramid and it's the foundation. So if that isn't built you're going to struggle the rest of the way up the pyramid to more complex things, or I don't know, Tipton knows how to roll over and all that stuff. Right. And shake paws, but he wouldn't do that if he didn't trust me. Of course. You know, but that came months later. And with dogs, I don't know if this is the same as kids, but a lot of building trust is just doing things with them. Um, They don't get hurt. Right. They survive. Right. That's right. It's a positive outcome. I worked with some difficult populations. I worked in all Title I schools in low-income communities. I worked in a community outside of Phoenix, Arizona, that was a migrant farm worker community and was mostly illegal immigrants. There were places in that town that were so overridden by gangs that the police wouldn't go there. So The children lived in a a very different world than where I grew up in central Pennsylvania. You know, I found very quickly that working with children in those types of situations meant forming even more of a relationship and more of a trust and more of a bond because they came from places where people like me authority figures and people in schools were not always trustworthy, right? And these people were at risk of being deported if the wrong person wanted to tip someone off and things like that. So 
it was very important in those communities, especially to form that relationship and have that trust and that bond. And a lot of my mentor instructors talk to me a lot because it just, it's, it takes something different in those types of environments. And I think that that's, there's parallels to that with with feral dogs, because they're coming again in a different environment. It's just really important in those situations to have that trust and that foundation and that proper relationship to move forward. Let me ask you a question. I can't resist, but ask you. So if you gave a kid M&Ms every time they came to see you, would that build trust? No. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, there, you know, there, there are some situations where these things might help, but (laughs) might help to kind of get your foot in the door initially Mm-hmm. and get, get some, get a child maybe interested in you in a different way. Mm-hmm. Um, but realistically it's, it, 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 it requires so much more than that. M&Ms and candy and cookies, right. Are not the same as safety and security. Yeah. And most of the kids that I work with were not the type of kids that could be bought. Right. <laughs> you know, you really, you really had to, had to earn it and you had to prove it and you had to you had to show them through your actions over time that you were who you said you were mm. and you would do the things that you, that you claim to do. Mm. And it, and like you're saying with that first initial meeting, right? Like if, if you break that trust in some way, it becomes very difficult to move forward. And this is kind of off topic. I'm just curious, had these kids maybe been, let's say bribed before? I'm sure. And that person had disappointed them. That's right. A lot. And a lot of them, there was a lot of, I worked with students who were underperforming it as a rule, right? You have to underperform to qualify for special education. To see you. <laughs> yeah. So um, a lot of them had, yeah, like had negative experiences where they were promised something and got something different before. Um a lot of the time it was tied into test scores. Mm. They were told that if they performed a certain level on a certain state test, that they would go to the next grade or whatever it would be. And I had one student who had been held back because of his test scores after being promised two years in a row, that he would move forward. Oh no. He was 15 years old in eighth grade. And when I had to give him the test that year, he laid in the fetal position on the floor and sobbed. Oh, jeez! And was terrified. And there was nothing I could do to like regain that trust at that point. And right. it wasn't I who had broken it. Right. But other people had to the point that, I mean, he was completely shut down. That's heartbreaking. It was really sad. Yeah. yeah. Just let's just make this clear. I'm not trying to equate children and dogs, right? Like not at all. <laughs> not not in any way I get mad when people yes. uh, actually say like happy mother's day to dog owners because mm-hmm. <laughs> having a kid is so much more difficult and involved and of course you know so I'm not trying to like say oh dogs are just like kids as a matter of fact there's a lot of differences in the two species but you know we've evolved together and our lives are very intertwined with canines and you know, I'd love to do all these studies on dogs and things that probably have been done on humans. So we're just kind of drawing parallels and 
and trying to maybe use some stories to illustrate kind of our thoughts about how to work with fearful dogs too. A lot of the dogs that I work with have probably been treated poorly or tried to be tricked by people before. I mean, the treated poorly part is pretty obvious when we, you know, have photos of where they came from, the condition they were in. One of the dogs we just took back to Virginia, you know, Violet. I don't know if she was so much uh, mistreated physically, but she was definitely starved and kept in a very small enclosure. Yes, neglected. Neglected, which we would consider a form of abuse. Abuse. Children or humans, you know. Yeah. Um, And then there's other dogs, you know, that we know, well, you can just tell have been abused. Even we've, I mean, we've seen it, you know, strangely enough, people come to get their dog at the shelter and they start beating the dog in the parking lot because the dog ran away. Uh, Some other dogs we, we have because the owner was, you know, beating them in the vet parking lot and the vet asked them to relinquish the dogs. So we do know some things about these dogs. I'm not big into making up stories, but they do tell you what happened to them one way or another. And then like feral dogs or dogs that have escaped, people try to catch them. And a lot of times they try to catch them with food. And that involves a lot of trickery. I've actually tried to use food with some of these dogs and they assume I'm going to try to do the same thing. So you're basically dealing with a dog that you have very limited choices with, right? Like positive reinforcement is hard to use in the more how people think of it as like food rewards or toys or affection because these dogs don't value or trust that. And so we have to go to what, what do we have? You know, and a lot of times it's, it it goes down to making the dog feel safe, getting the dog out to get some exercise, which is a huge deal. I think people underestimate the effect that can have on a dog, especially a dog that's been in a kennel for a week or two at a time, or maybe even like Tipton was in a kennel for two months before he ever got out. And so that, that freedom is a huge asset to the dog. And it's also something we can give the dog to make them want to work with us. Right. Yeah. (laughs) So, you know, and I always try and tie in like using a dog, using its nose, there's studies with people, of course, that if they breathe in through their nose, it affects their whole central nervous system, calms them down. I'm trying to find studies where that actually proves that with dogs, because there's this saying out there that uh, 20 minutes of sniffing for a dog is like an hour walk, but I can't actually find any studies to prove that. <laughs> if you Google that, it's all over yeah, the internet. I've seen but I'm it like, all over, like Facebook. Like, where is the study? Where did this come from? And no one cites their sources. So I don't know where it came from. But it is true, right? Like, I mean, you can just watch a dog start to sniff like the Malinois I was talking about. He was interesting because he was very actually more confrontational with the handler than most of the dogs I work with. They usually want to avoid eye contact. Um, But he was glaring at her and growling. 
Oh, well. And so we had to figure out, okay, how do we de-escalate this dog? Like, how can we take away that feeling for him, make him feel a little bit safer so he doesn't have to growl, right? Some of it was I just had the person that was working with him actively look away from him. As soon as he would stop, and she wasn't looking, she was excellent. She wasn't looking at him directly before, but as soon as he would stop staring at her and looked away, I would have her actively like look at the ceiling or somewhere else. And then that dog started sniffing. And so then he stopped growling. So we were able to use, again, more just natural things for a dog, right? Natural language. Like a dog, if they want to avoid conflict, they're not going to stare at another dog. We got him leashed and out for a walk, and hopefully next time he'll be better. I think he will. That was super interesting to me to watch that all play out, right? I did find a study that walking increases oxytocin in dogs by four times. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yep. I see a lot of things of fearful and feral dogs are really restricted physically. What are we doing to that dog's like chemical makeup in their body? Mm. There's a video out there. I won't say who did it, but I believe it took them four months to get the dog to go down four stairs. Wow. What is this dog's life like while they're undergoing that? It's not really what I would call animal welfare, right? So that's kind of my overall thought process. There's a balance of good stress and bad stress. There's a lot of people, and I read a lot of things about, oh, I didn't want to stress the dog out. So therefore, I'm going to let them live in a state of fear for years, years. I mean, I get calls from dog owners or trainers who have clients who have had a dog be afraid of their husband or whoever for like two or three years. Yeah. Which is better, right? (laughs) Well, and there's different types of stress, right? Yeah. Right. Stress is not created equal. Right. Stress is harmful and traumatic and difficult, right? But you stress is the stress of learning Mm -hmm. and it's stress for a positive benefit and change over time. Right. So we don't want to, we don't want to put a dog into distress, but leaving a dog in distress to avoid you stress is equally as harmful. Yes. Well said. For sure. Of course, there's a balance to this. And this is where you have to really start paying attention to the dog. I think that's one thing working with these dogs has really pushed me to do is be very observant of the dog. It has to be all about the dog. A lot of people don't know, but I just started karate at 54 years old, right? (laughs) So I'm in a lot of eustress, occasionally distress, right? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Uh, It's extremely complicated. It takes a lot of focus. it's, It's good. I'm learning. I'm progressing. And if I never want to experience stress, I will never grow. These dogs have to go through some kind of stress. Um, people will, I, I also read, you know, oh, if they're stressed, they can't learn. Well, that's not true. It has to be the proper kind of stress that's where right. they get to succeed. I would imagine that's part of it. Yeah. Um, 
So I make sure every session with one of these dogs, they have some sort of success. We had some kind of one thing I find really powerful is if they have successful communication with a human and understanding, right? It's kind of like, I always say it's like going to a foreign country and you try to speak a little of the language and maybe it's kind of rocky, but you each kind of get your point across, right? And it's usually with what body language, <laughs> pointing, uh-huh. making shapes with your hands, right? If we can just have a conversation that we both understand, then the dog starts to trust me. And that is not done with food. Yes, I could, you know, and well, there's lots of reasons I don't use food, but the main one is I haven't seen it work very well. And these most dogs won't take it anyway. And I do know that there are ways out there that they wait for the dog to become able to take food before they start doing rehab, which I highly disagree with because it could be a year, you know, it could be a very long time. I mean, when I, when I was a dog walker, a dog that I ended up keeping, it was three weeks of walking her before I could put the leash on her myself, but I still had the mom put the leash on and I walked the dog. Right. And that's how we got to that point in three weeks. So I can't, and she wouldn't take food or, I mean, she wouldn't even look at food. She looked at me like, yeah, you know, if I brought out food, it broke more trust. Yeah. It goes back to the sense that it's very unnatural for these dogs. They don't understand why you're trying to give them food when you just met them. Like they don't get it. They don't understand, but then they will understand taking advantage of the food right? Like they'll do things once they realize, oh, if I do something, I get a tasty morsel and you might be able to convince them to do that. But as soon as that contract, I call that like an agreement, a contract of if I do X, you give me this. As soon as that contract changes, the dog is not going to trust you again. Yeah. Cause you violated all of the terms. Yeah, exactly. You you know, and that's right. Like if you have a contract with a human and you sign, right, there's terms in there that dictate how you change the contract. And usually both parties have to agree and resign. Right. And so the dog's saying, we did not negotiate, we did not renegotiate this deal, human. Right. Right. And it breaks trust with dogs like that. Yeah. When that's their first interaction or their first or, you know, like they don't have a, a lot of other positive experiences to rely upon to inform them. You can do more harm than good approaching it that way. Because then when the next person isn't a treat dispenser, they don't even know what to do with that. True. You know, the shelter I mostly volunteer for, for a while they were using, they would throw food in the runs and stuff. And granted, they get their nightly treat and stuff. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. Well, and a lot of shelters go around and have a a cup of food outside the kennel. And then whenever someone passes by, they put, they throw food in the, in the kennel. And that's to make the dog appear more friendly towards those humans. What happens when the human doesn't have that food? It's like, it, that's very confusing to the dog. I don't know if I'm explaining this properly, but I just, I just think that we're doing 
dogs a disservice to think that's how simple they are and that they're so easily fooled. Right. And so trust, so just blindly trusting. Right. Um, and they're not. This comes back to what a dog is, right? They're they're resilient. They understand negative and positive consequences. They understand a lot of nonverbal communication. I mean, they communicate very well with each other without saying a word. And usually they're much more respectful of what each other is saying than we are as humans mm-hmm. to dogs and people, right? To boil down like what they can learn from as only being one quadrant or one only positive reinforcement. And to me is not honoring the intelligence of a dog and their flexibility, which is what we love them for. But yet we don't want to incorporate that into our training, which to me is very confusing. That's kind of how I started kind of developing my my whole rehab process. And I call my rehab process, I, I named it like Rehab Train Thrive because the first part is rehab, right? Where you have to build trust. Rehabbing is bringing things that have been damaged back to their previous state. We have to rehab that dog first. We have to earn trust. We have to get them to some level of normalcy, right? Being comfortable before we can start like more typical training, which is more obedience training or it depends. I used to train my dogs a lot and all kinds of things formally, mm-hmm. but now I, I don't like most of the dogs that I foster, they know come and they know sit and they know like me stepping in means stay. And that's about it. And the rest I do like non-verbally. So yeah, the training comes next, right? Because we know these dogs need to live in a human world. And usually if we're rehabbing them, they're going to become pets. And so they do need some form of training. And also that that training makes things pass over to the next person easier. And then the thrive I put in there because I don't think people realize how far these dogs can go. They can thrive. They can, they don't just exist. The dogs that I rehab, I have very high standards that they go on to be a normal functional pet that can go on vacations. They can go in cars. They can go on walks. They can go to the park. I mean, Tipton goes to workshops with me. He's not always like totally thrilled about it. You know, the dog has a very full life and the dogs that we've, I've rehabbed through the, through the shelter and the rescue, they have very full lives. And I think a lot of people, because they haven't seen it, they put limits on these dogs. And so then the dogs never become like all that they can be. That's why I put in the thrive part. I don't want them to just survive, right? They right. Need to, like have a great life. Right. And I mean, I can speak for Boone, who not a feral dog by any means, but uh, very, very fearful. We have we have come so far with his triggers and his fear responses. Right now, I have someone doing construction in my basement and he's silent, <laughs> right? A year ago, two years ago, I mean, this was literally unimaginable. 
And the, the thrive to me is also this long-term process Mm -hmm. that is very difficult to conceptualize if you have never seen it because the dogs just keep getting better. It's just, and it, and it happens naturally and it happens slowly, but it happens consistently over time where everything continues to get easier and they feel safer and it just all keeps coming together in more ways than I think I could have ever imagined when I started, you know, this journey with him. So I think that that is an important thing that we don't, we don't talk about a lot. You don't need a treat pouch, right? Like, like I don't have anything. I don't carry anything. Now I barely need a leash. And if he starts to get worried and I can just uh, reassure him or tell him, Hey, don't do that. And he's like, Oh, okay, cool. I'll go back and do something different. And usually it's sniffing, right? Goes and investigates it in a better way. And so it's a really beautiful thing, but in working with human behavior modification and children and adults, the foundation of behavior modification is a therapeutic relationship. So if you see a therapist and you have things that you're working on that you want to change in your life, you don't go in on day one and have the therapist say, okay, here's what we're doing, right? We're changing this. We're changing that. We're changing X. We're changing Y, right? Like change everything in your life overnight. (laughs) And I feel like sometimes that's what we do to these dogs, Julie. Yeah. Sometimes we want to bring these dogs right into our home and we say, now you're a normal dog and you're going to act like you've done this your whole life. And right. And the dogs are looking at us like, I have no idea what to do in this situation. Right. Right. And we have to have, even with humans, you have to have a therapeutic relationship and there's different things that that can different, different shapes that that can take. Trust is the foundation you can't have a good relationship with a therapist if you don't trust them. Yeah. And we're basically therapists for these dogs, right? Yeah. And teaching them how to do things in different ways and that can't happen if they don't trust us and want to ex- you know experience things with us in a different way. Yeah, and the funny thing is is the the people that have the dogs Granted, a lot of them don't know what to do because there's not a lot of good information out there, I think. That's right. But there's also kind of an attitude like the dog is the only one that needs to change in the relationship. My husband, when I started doing this, (laughs) like my husband puts up with a lot, but he thought he was like, oh, these dogs are duds. They're boring because they don't like me right away. Like a normal happy-go-lucky dog would be like, yeah, you're awesome just because you exist. <laughs> right. You know, and, and these uh-huh. dogs didn't. They And he was like, why are they acting like that? I've never done anything to them. And I'm like, it has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with what this dog has experienced, where they came from, or not experienced. Who knows? And mm-hmm. so he's actually, he's learned quite a bit over the years. He knows, of course. you know, don't look at them directly in the eye. Don't reach for them over the head. Like he knows all of this stuff. And I've gradually upped the difficulty for him over the years. Yes. <laughs> With you know? lots of positive reinforcement. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the dogs give the positive reinforcement. That's right. Because then they start to like him. 
then he likes that, right? Yeah, he likes right. to play with dogs and stuff. So then that's its own positive reinforcement yeah, for what he does. So, exactly. you know, but the people have to be very willing to do things that are very unnatural for us because you basically have to act like a dog in some respects, not crawling around on all fours or anything, but just the the way we tell them, you know, we're not here to create any conflict. We're not here to hurt them. I've never seen my dogs feel sorry for a fearful dog. Like I don't bring one in and they sit there and they're like, oh, you poor thing. What have you been through? Oh, well, you won't be able to progress at all because you've been traumatized or you've been feral. Here, no. share my dinner. Yeah, share my dinner. Here, let me go get you some treats and throw it at you, right? My dogs don't do that. Actually, what they do is kind of come over and sniff and then walk away. And like Chardonnay might start sniffing some things around the yard. Annie would usually just go lay down in the yard and just hang out. So sometimes I think we make it much more complicated than it needs to be as well, right? It doesn't need to be so fancy. But if you don't have fancy, if you don't have bells and whistles and treats and things, the only thing left to look at is you. And what can you do to help this dog? Humans have the ability. I think sometimes maybe because we're different species or maybe they feel this way with people too. I don't know. But like maybe we're not enough for this dog. And so we have to give it things. And give it treats and give it food. I can I can tell like we are enough, right? Their their DNA is they are they are made to be social with humans. They have a gene that makes them social, and they're also pack animals, so they want to belong to a group, a stable, safe group. The so. reason the dogs that we have today are no longer wolves <laughs> is they learn to cooperate and live with us. Yeah. Like we change that 3% of DNA or whatever it is, right? Yeah. By, and they learn to work with us. So it's in every dog. Yeah. Even yeah. In the ones that are feral. Yes. But if we don't learn to communicate with them in a way that they recognize and we try to tell them English. Yeah. Right. They're, yeah, it, it's, it's, you know, there's going to be a breakdown in communication. I think we covered most of the other stuff. Should we get into the questions? Yeah, let's do that. All right. I put out a request questions because I wanted to know what other people wanted to know. My sensei also says you need to teach what the people need to learn, not what you want to teach. Which I like that. Yes. Is again totally there's so much in karate that he says <laughs> that applies to dogs. And I'm like, how many times do we go in with our own agenda of what we want to teach that dog instead of looking at what does that dog need to learn? Do you want to read the questions or you want me to read the question? Sure, I would love to read the question. All right, go for it. Got it. Okay, so one of the questions that we got is, is it difficult to rehab multiple feral dogs at one time? <laughs> I think this is from someone that has trapped a, a few and has a couple in their house. <laughs> but this will actually relate also. I know there's a few places in Las Vegas where they have maybe four feral puppies that are all in the same foster home. 
So my answer is the famous, it depends. You want to, so I would want to make sure that those dogs, because eventually if your goal is to rehome them to live in a human household, they need to learn to bond with people more than other dogs. They already know how to bond with dogs. We don't need to teach that. Let's say you enjoy doing this as a hobby and you have two or three project dogs you're working on. I would take each of them separate and and separate them quite a bit and work with them all separately because they will bond with each other and they won't bond with the people. Other dogs can always help you too. So, you know, look at, well, maybe one feral dog isn't afraid of, I don't know, construction noises, but another feral dog is afraid of people, right? And so you could use the one feral dog who's maybe more outgoing with people to help teach the one who's scared of people and then vice versa. So you could kind of use their strengths to help each other in a group, especially if they already trust each other. And that's kind of how I use my dogs to rehab other dogs anyway, is that they, my dogs trust us. So they set the example for the feral dogs that we're okay. Now they're not going to do that all by themselves. We have to follow through on that too. That would be a lot of work. (laughs) Usually I only have one at a time in my house that I'm working with. There's a couple other questions that we've touched on a little bit that are tied in here. Do you find having other animals and or people in the house helps or hurts? And what are some of the most helpful and least helpful things you can do to rehab a feral dog? Yeah, the most helpful. Yeah, I think we've already touched on that some, right? Present yourself as non-threatening. You have to enter the dog's world and understand where they're coming from and that they are truly not sure if they are safe get them to investigate things and and get them to use their nose those things are most helpful but what i will say is that that doesn't mean the dog's using its nose without you participating in it important must, clarification yes must be an active participant with the dog in these things right now my dogs are eating all the juniper berries off the trees Right. So I go out there and I help them like they've eaten all the low hanging fruit now. And so I go out there and I help them get the higher hanging fruit. And they're like, oh, cool. Mom's mom's doing it, too. Right. So there's all these little things you can you have to like, what do dogs care about and show them that you care about those things, too. How and when do you start bringing them to public places with other people? I kind of do. I mean, each dog is different right? If you're dealing with fearful and feral dogs, sometimes they're not afraid of environmental stuff at all because they've been like Tipton is not, he's, he was free roaming. He socialized with all everything, cars, noises, you know, things happening. I'm sure he's jumped many fences and all kinds of stuff like that. So he's not scared of environmental stuff, but he is afraid of people That would be when you think the dog trusts you enough to rely on you to keep them safe in those situations. And how long that is depends on lots of things, right? Like how severe the dog is. Not all feral dogs are as severely feral as others. (laughs) How long have they been feral? 
did they have a home before where maybe they went on walks with people and all of a sudden they remember that it's kind of like they remember and these things can happen what i would say is you know start really small with these public places so i would always take them to a very a park with very large soccer fields and so we could be on the other side of the soccer fields from anything else going on and we did a lot of sniffing we did a lot of staying on the perimeter right those are all very important don't make your dog walk across an empty open field where they could become a target we all know that's not going to happen but they don't know that we need to keep them in their comfort zone and then gradually i would say with tipton it took maybe five visits to the same park before he kind of chilled out but it, he was also enjoying it right he was he was unsure but he was having a good time because he was on a long line so we got a lot of freedom that's also really important right if you take your fearful dog to a public place Give them the freedom to move away and not run away. That's different. But move away from things that make them uncomfortable. They have to be able to have some say-so in this and how it goes. I think in the last question, there was the least helpful things people do to yes. reach a feral dog. I would say they they rely on food to build the relationship. And they also just interact with the dog in a way that is threatening to the dog. People don't realize this. They think they're being nice, but that's where educating comes in. You know, no eye contact. That is the number one scariest thing for a feral dog is eye contact. And what do we do when we meet a new dog, right? We look at it and we go, oh, you're so cute. And we reach for it. <laughs> it's like terrifying, right? <laughs> People could just not do those few things that would help so much and let the dog sniff you and don't put any pressure on the dog in that sense to interact with you by being by satisfying the human's needs for wanting a dog to be affectionate with, I guess. Are there any indicators or predictors of how easy or likely a feral dog can be rehabbed? And do you ever have any expectations or standards or behavioral milestones that you look for? I think there are indicators. I've kind of devised um temperament evaluation of my of some sorts for really fearful and feral dogs. And it's kind of the same as a normal temperament test for what I look for is is that dog interested in people? Is there any inkling and it may be very small, very small signs that a dog is interested in interacting with people? Is it interested in cooperating with me? And you will only know these, like what is better or not by handling a lot of dogs. These are things that are very, very subtle. For example, like when I first worked with Tipton, he immediately started to engage with me in the pattern that I was building and the activities we were doing. And if I, I messed up and didn't do the pattern, he would be like, hey, hey, lady, you know, but I would like at one point, I would just hold out my hand. And then every time we were in that same spot, he would come up and sniff it. But not all dogs would want to engage with me that easily. It's hard, though, to really know. 
been a lot of dogs that they've rehabbed at the shelter that I was like, ooh, I don't know about. And they've turned out to be just fine. So I also withhold a lot of judgment. There's very few dogs that I've encountered that were feral that I'm like, ooh, that's just dangerous. And it's pretty much the same signs. I think easy is also like how long have they been feral or or isolated or in a hoarding case or the longer they've been like that, the harder they're going to be to change that just because it's become a brain pattern, right? It's it's actually a neural sort of, pathway. Thank you. Neural pathway. They've grown myelin around that behavior. Yes. In educating children, I was always taught that if a student completed a, a problem, did an exercise one time the incorrect way, mm-hmm. they would have to redo it seven times the correct way in order to reroute that neural pathway. So I think about that often with dogs, yeah. right? Because when, because they're teaching themselves things, even if we're not, and they learn patterns of behavior. And for every one time in a human brain, it would need seven more times to be undone. Wow. So it takes a, a long time and a lot of a lot of practice to unlearn and relearn and reprogram those neural pathways in the brain in both species. Mm-hmm. Can you totally domesticate a feral dog? That's the one. Oh, there you go. Uh Or will it always have an element of feral in it? So if I recall, and tell me if this is right, um, the neural pathways that are grown never disappear. That's right. So that's right. That would mean that feral behavior is always laying beneath the surface somewhere. Yes. And I think if something happens that would fire that, neural pathway, the dog could very quickly revert to that feral behavior. But that doesn't mean the dog can't be a happy pet and it can grow new pathways and new behaviors. I mean, I keep using Tipton as an example, but I've lived with him for three years, so he's a good one. We had some uh, like a party (laughs) and he was actually out with the people kind of hanging, you know, back some and my husband let him outside one of his big things when I first got him was he did not want to come inside if there was anyone else in the house but me and so he didn't want to run away necessarily because he knew he lives here now but it was not easy to get him in the house with all those strange people in here now that just shows like that re- and he gets this look, right? He gets like this feral dog look and his his walk changes. Mm-hmm. So I would say, yes, there's always an element there. And that goes to, you know, if you adopt a dog who's been like this, then just don't underestimate that part of them. And you cannot control the world. You cannot control something's going to happen that's going to scare them. Tipton has a ton of freedom. He's on a very long line, but he is not off leash. Because I don't want to lose my dog. (laughs) Something goes bang or someone comes up behind us and scares him. I don't, I don't want something bad to happen. So 
I think about it a lot the way that we talk about trauma in the human brain. Hmm. So being feral, being scared, being alone, being in survival mode, right? Right, is a form of trauma. Any of the little things that can kind of remind them of that. And and right, it seems it's obvious when it's a house full of people, right. but it can be right. Just like in, in humans and people that have PTSD, it can be a smell, a sound, you know, a very tiny sensory experience that can kind of revert the brain back into that survival state. Mm-hmm. And they'll kind of go back into those same behaviors, seeking survival. Right. And so kind of like what you were saying before too, that if we, we have to always keep that in, in our minds with these dogs, that everything is really rooted in survival. And that perspective helps to kind of inform how you deal with it. Like with Tipton, if he is fully free, it can put him into that survival mode. Right. So he just has to keep the drag line on or yeah. the long line. Right. And that helps him from getting into that mindset. Was Jules feral? Phyllis's dog Jules? Not truly feral? No, I wouldn't consider her feral. I mean, she probably lived without a lot of positive human interaction. She's more of the level of a lot of dogs that we see here. But we'd have to ask B because I didn't meet her when she first came into the shelter either. Okay. So I'm not sure where she was before that. By the way, we're talking about B. Gallego, yes. director of the Las Vegas Animal Care Center, who a is- wonderful and lovely and talented B. Yes. <laughs> and she has developed a way to rehab these dogs in a shelter environment, in a very difficult shelter environment. In a very, oh, difficult very difficult and very pressed for resources shelter environment. Yes. So if you have a shelter and you're not sure how to help these dogs, reach out to B or to me. I'll put you in touch um, with her. So yeah, she has a harder job than I do if I bring them to my house. <laughs> so, all right. What's, a, what's another question? This is a good question from Anne. So Anne also said, um, we talk a lot about building trust with our dogs, but are we really building trust or just helping to eliminate its fear? I would say both. If you trust something, you're going to be less afraid of it. If we're talking about people, right? Building trust with people. That's what I would say. There's other ways to eliminate fear of things, objects. I got Shiloh. She was terrified if I'd pick up a broom or a rake or something with a long handle on it, right? I get a lot of dogs that have fears like that. And I'll work specifically on fear with those particular objects, but only after the dog trusts me first. I think it's a stair step kind of kind of thing in that respect. You can't have you can't eliminate fear without trust in the handler. That's my answer. Yeah. I, I agree with that. I think it's it one feeds the other. One hand feeds the other in that situation. We're building trust by helping to eliminate, reduce, right? The fear. You want to go to Martha's questions? Yeah. We have a question from Martha who is in Bali and does a lot of work with street dogs in Bali. 
And she says, I am trying to understand the difference with the Bali dogs. A friend will take me to see the semi-feral ones she feeds. I mostly only see the owned ones, owned dogs that are running loose and are social with owners, but fearful of strangers. Okay. So it's, so it's, it's less of a question and more of a, a statement. Um, something she's pondering. Yeah. So she says that the owned ones that run loose are cautious. Mm-hmm. They act fearful. If she looks at them, they bark in their territory and maybe run for home if they are outside or near the edge of their territory. I mean, there's a lot to talk about here. Mm-hmm. The ones that are fed that are semi-feral. I wonder if they're semi-feral because they'll come and eat when a person's around. It almost sounds like a feral colony type of situation. That's what I'm thinking. And I'm thinking if the person didn't have food, the dogs probably wouldn't be feral. That's what I'm thinking. But there's some level of trust there that if she brings food, she's not going to try to hurt them. The own dogs. And this is interesting. Of course, I have not been to Bali. I'd love to go. (laughs) We see this kind of stuff in Las Vegas, New Mexico. So we saw dogs that were loose when we were up there that were running loose, but actually were owned by someone. And there was no way these dogs were going to come up to us or anything like that. And owned in a very vague general sense where if the dog chose not to return, they would not be owned any longer type of situation, right? Yeah. I mean, these are basically dogs that kind of roam around and might have a feeding station or maybe go somewhere at night. I think B said, right, they let them out while they're at work to go to the bathroom. (laughs) So they're gone all day. (laughs) You know, but that probably is a lot about survival too. I don't know how... People in Bali treat dogs at large. This is interesting because I think it varies per country. You know, I saw something about dogs in Turkey, I think, where people treated them quite well. And even though they were free roaming, they could pet them and stuff like that. But I think here they get a lot of, they get yelled at, told to buzz off, things thrown at them, like that kind of thing. So they're not going to be real trusting of people. I know I've seen in some of Martha's posts, she talks about um, all of the dogs will scatter if you bend down to pick up a rock. That's kind of how the locals, because they they form packs right, and they can, can try to control territory. Yeah. So if the dogs seem that they're aggressing, people will just bend down and pick up rocks and they will run. They scatter so they know. Uh, yes. Part of why they bark at strangers, right? That's defensive. The owned ones are loose and they, they trust the people that own them because they don't throw rocks at them. Right. And, and plus, you know, territory is such a huge, a huge thing for dogs. Tipton's behind the fence in our yard <laughs> and someone pulls up like UPS, right? He looks like the, a very assertive dog and he has a very loud bark and his tail's up. If I take him out there on a leash to greet that person, he's like trying to run away. Territory makes a huge difference. And plus, if they have other dogs around them and they are forming packs, I mean, safety in numbers, right? So, yeah, and they run home because that's where where they know they're safe, probably. Which, I mean, it, it sounds fascinating. Like, I'd love to go and watch these dogs. I've been to an island in Belize where dogs were free roaming. I don't know if they have them. Um, a safety issue with those dogs there. 
places in the U.S., they do. Packs of dogs are running around Las Vegas, like killing other people's dogs. And I don't think I'd want to walk down the street in the neighborhood where these dogs are roaming around. So, I mean, it, it can be an issue. Um, we have some more questions. We have some questions about leash pressure. Yeah. So Pam asks, what do you do with a fearful dog that despises any leash pressure? Not in the sense of pulling them to get them to move with you, but having someone hold a leash when introducing her to new people. It's obviously a safety precaution, but she is more concerned with wanting to avoid leash pressure that she won't even move far enough to actually create tension. Hmm. I'm trying to picture this in my head. Go ahead and read the rest and we'll try. I've never seen it so bad in a dog before, but the, but the big Cane Corso needs the leash, but it feels like she almost shuts down because of the leash. Not so much the new person, same reaction with a muzzle, even after weeks and weeks of training, no new person can be around. And as soon as the muzzle goes on, she freezes and becomes a completely different dog. My thought was get her comfortable in the muzzle and do a tab leash so she can engage with the new person, but both seem to be a control factor and she chooses freeze, flight, then fight. First of all, I'm going to say Connie Corso was like stuck out at me. It's not a breed I usually work with. I don't work with Mastiffs that much because they're just not around here. There's an element in that breed that I would be very cautious with in this scenario. And I don't know if the dog is, well, she does say it's a fearful dog. So I would say a couple things kind of come to mind here that the dog doesn't trust the leash or the muzzle if it's having that kind of reaction to it. And is that muzzle only going on before new people come around? And if so, then the leash and the muzzle then represent an unpleasant scenario happening. I would get the dog used to leash and muzzle if she needs a muzzle. If she needs a muzzle, she shouldn't be around new people anyway. Why does she need to meet new people? Maybe it's just a precaution. Maybe the owners feel better with the muzzle on. Like there's all these things in here that I would want. I would have a lot of questions before really answering this people do this, right? They'll put a leash on before something bad happens. And then the leash becomes a negative. When I rehab dogs, leash goes on, we go do something fun. The feral dogs quickly learn leash means walk and freedom exercise, right? I would want the leash and the muzzle to mean the same thing with this dog. As far as the tension, so I'm trying to think, like, is it actually just the tension this dog is avoiding? I mean, that could just be, like, resistance. How much does the dog understand leash tension without a new person around would be my question. Does she ever, you know, shut down and just says she avoids leash pressure? Hmm. We need, like, a 30-minute interview with the person that wrote the question to get more. I know we need a lot more information. Well, and especially when when someone's saying, you know, a mastiff who's nervous of new people and needs to be in a muzzle, yeah, it gets difficult to advise on these things mm-hmm. remotely over the internet, right? Without uh, being able to ask all these questions. You can always send us a video. Pictures speak a thousand words. 
the frame with the video. I mean, if a dog is this uncomfortable meeting new people, they're not going to be meeting new people with me. When I first had all those people over for the party, Tipton was gated off in my studio here. He was kind of hiding around the corner so no one could see him. <laughs> but he was free to make that choice, right? He could go in his crate. He could go further away. He could come to the gate and look. He had the freedom to move around in what he knows is his safe area. He knows no one's allowed to come in here except me and my husband. And they were all dog people, so they knew better anyway. You know, eventually he just stood at the gate and wanted out. And so that's when I let him out. I wouldn't have necessarily forced him to do that. The social interaction that he's learned and a lot of it's been at the workshops, was all motivated by him, by his own curiosity, because he would go around behind everyone sitting in chairs and like sniff their butts, right? Sniff their behinds. And then at lunch and stuff, people would start sneaking him food, <laughs> giving him parts of their lunch. <laughs> and he, but it was his decision to go up to them in the first place. I never like forced him to go up to people. For my lifestyle, I don't care if he likes other people. It's not a big deal. And I think that's kind of something you have to accept when you get a dog like this is that they're not going to be a social butterfly. They're kind of going to be okay in their circle of trust. And he's learned to like my kids that come visit. And if people are here for a few days, he he goes up to them for pets and stuff like that. But if I take him to a park, he's not going up to people to say hello. And then what are the new people doing to the dog? Right? Are they looking at the dog? What are they thinking internally in their head? Because that's super important. You cannot fool a dog. And if you're thinking like, I want to touch you, I'm going to reach out when you come over here and pet you. That's a predatory mindset and the dog knows it. It goes with a lot of educating your guests too. And if people aren't going to listen to me, they're not going to, I'm not going to have Tipton out around those people. Those are kind of my thoughts on this. I would not do a tab leash because that gives you less, that gives the dog less space to make any decisions on her own. And with a breed like this, first of all, why are they fearful? They shouldn't really be fearful. That's not a preferred behavior in a Connie Corso. And if they are fearful, then you have a spooky guard dog. Right. And it strikes me too that she describes the pattern as freeze, flight, fight. Right. Which is exactly what you would anticipate to see, right? The dog goes still to try to avoid conflict. The dog tries to flee. Yeah. get away from the conflict. None of those things work. Yeah. And really the only option left is to fight. Yeah. Um, I also find that when fight is the last choice, rehab can be easier than a dog like mine, Boone, who fight is <laughs> was <choice>. his <laughs> first choice. <laughs> Number one, right. it's a lot more difficult to work with that than a dog who wants to move away. Correct. Yeah. And we should always honor those, those signals in a dog. If a dog is freezing and wanting to flee, I'm going to let them release some of that pressure, like psychological pressure on them somehow. 
I'm not going to totally let them run away in fear and never address the situation again. I will. So maybe I just need to move five feet further away and the dog will be okay with something. Or maybe I maybe it's too soon to conquer this issue. Maybe I need to do more trust building or rehab in a different way and then come back to it later. If this has been happening over and over with this dog, this dog does not trust the people handling it. And so that would be number one, that dog needs to know those people are going to be, they have her back. They're not going to push her into uncomfortable situations. There's lots of ways you can make her more comfortable. That's actually what I want to see when I pick dogs like this. That goes back to the question about which dogs do I pick. I want to pick the dogs who want to run away or who want to freeze and that don't want to fight right away. And then that, that also brings to mind, right? Nelson always says, give the dog an out. You have to give these dogs an out or then they have no choice but to fight and defend themselves because they're terrified. I'd love to see a video of this. Now I'm all curious. <laughs> I know me too. You know, we may be interpreting um, this totally wrong. I don't know. Um, but it's an interesting scenario. And I, I think one very, very common, actually, that people try to force fearful or feral dogs to interact with strangers. And then it actually makes it worse. That's how Boone landed a bite on a child. Hmm. On leash thinking that they should introduce him. Right. And he went straight his mouth, straight for fight. Yeah. When he didn't have another choice when he was on leash. Yes. So that's, that's a huge point. Like a leash really restricts movement for these guys. If they've been feral, maybe even fearful and not been on a leash, but maybe been kept in a yard or something like that. Restricting that dog's movement to only six feet each way is very restrictive. I use a lot of long lines for that reason. I learn a lot about dogs when they're on a long line because they have choice and they can show me what their comfort level is. What are they afraid of? What is their natural tendency? All that kind of stuff. Someone asks, what's the, what's the oldest feral dog you've rehabbed? I wouldn't say I've rehabbed this dog, but there was a dog at the shelter, which I'm guessing was about nine years old. Someone that came to one of our workshops, he was a boxer mix, if I'm not mistaken, took him home. He definitely made a lot of progress. I I have not kept in touch. I'm not sure what happened with him, if he ended up staying with them or, or what. Most of the dogs, well, I mean, Hawkeye was at least five when I got him. Wow. I don't know if I'd call him feral. He's had interaction with people, but it wasn't good. They're usually young. I mean, usually dogs that are feral don't live a long time. That's right, unfortunately. They're smart enough to never be caught by the time they've evaded catching for five years. Like, you're not going to stop them. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Usually, I mean, the earlier the better, right? I'll tell you, feral puppies are, uh, they're tough. They are tough to rehab. It can totally be done because they're young. You know, just the drama of it all, right? Of getting a leash on and stuff. It's it's very dramatic. How do you find the right home for them once you rehab a feral dog? How do you explain to and teach people how to interact with the dogs? Yeah, so this is a whole nother part of the struggle, right? 
Anyone who's trying to rescue and rehab these dogs, you have to realize that it can take a long time to find the right home. And I do not sugarcoat the dog or try and pass them off as just a little scared, right? They're just a <laughs> um, little shy. Yeah, because a lot of my clients have gotten feral dogs that way from the shelter or whatever, or from rescues that think, oh, I'll just give this person the dog and you know they'll be fine. They're not fine. And the dog isn't fine. If you're going to adopt out these dogs, you need to do your work. You need to have a group of people that can rehab them. And then you need to have a lot of education in the process. I had, I don't know how many applications on Tipton, <laughs> quite a few, which I turned them all down, <laughs> mostly because they weren't the right people for him. I don't mean to sound mean or cruel uh, when I say this, but these dogs need, they need a protector. They need stability. They need someone who is aware of how their actions affect the dog. What I look for when someone comes to meet one of these dogs is, do they care how the dog feels at all? Or are they just like shoving themselves? Oh, I love dogs. All dogs love me. And the dog's like, oh, get me out of here. Those people are no. They need to have a normal dog. <laughs> there were two men that adopted one of the dogs from us that had had a feral dog previously. So that's another thing I, I look for, right? If you've had a fearful dog in the past or you have a fearful dog, has that dog made progress in your home or has it been stuck? Because I'm not going to give you another fearful dog so it can just be stuck too. Usually I want to pair them with another dog who's quote unquote normal outgoing with people, normal in a human world. Time the dogs are ready to be adopted out, it's not as much. They have they know how to walk on a leash. They're crate trained. They use the bathroom outside. They've been to social places. Usually these are people who aren't very, they're not party animals themselves. They don't have 20 people over every weekend. They don't have a large family coming over that wouldn't be a great environment. I've never adopted out a feral dog to a home with young children because usually they are, it's just too much, right? It's too much for the dog. And probably with the people, if they have small kids, they're busy with those kids. Yeah, I just look, look for someone with a calm, stable, but not insecure demeanor, but who's a little soft and doesn't throw out a lot of like dominant energy, if that makes sense. No anxiety in the person or, or you know, controlled anxiety, I should say, because these dogs don't need more anxiety in their life. They're already have enough of it. So yeah, they need like a, a emotional support person. Some, some self-awareness. <laughs> Think, <laughs> with right? some self-awareness self -awareness in these in in this type of owner is really critical it's so important that they are understanding how what they're doing is impacting the dog emotionally yeah. and I find there's a certain element of self-awareness yes. that helps with that tremendously yes and someone who's willing to learn that's really important too someone who like I just adopted out Vienna to a very lovely person in all places, Las Vegas, where she came from. <laughs> <laughs> 
you know, but this person has never had a dog before, but she's worked with horses a lot. She said, well, am I just precluded from this because I haven't had a dog before? And I said, on the contrary, you're perfect because you haven't had a dog before. You don't have, she didn't have a lot of preconceived notions. She, she was willing to learn. Plus home's very quiet environment. They take walks and she has a nice little fence yard and stuff like that. You know, you always find these these little gems in packages you may not expect them to be in. When you do dog rescue, I try to be very open and and not judge people too quickly. However, if they say things like, but after a month, I can take him off leash hiking, right? I'm like, nope, nope, not the dog for you. (laughs) After I just explained, like, you can't take the dog off leash. (laughs) (laughs) I'll be happy to adopt this other dog to you you know, but not this previously feral dog. Managing, managing some of those expectations, right? (laughs) I am honest with people. I don't try to scare them away, but I'm honest. Do a meet and greet at adoption event usually, and then we'll meet either at their house or a park. And then they can see what the dog is really like. I don't try to cover up anything. I explain you know, this is what he does or or the dog does. And this is how I have helped the dog. And I, I don't know, you got to go by gut instinct sometimes too. It just is. But I will say that I have had, I've had very few dogs returned over 14 years. But when I had that large hoarding case, we had two dogs out of eight come back one time. And I was like devastated, right? Because I had never had dogs returned before. But that taught me a lot about sometimes people will say things because they want that dog and it's what you want to hear. But I should have gone with my gut, which was telling me they're not sincere. I will say a lot of times the, the, the males in the household say that the dog's too much work. They don't want to put in the work, which is fine. Like, I get it, right? They are a lot of work. But if you really don't want to do it, then just be honest with yourself and with the person you're adopting the dog from so we can find you a dog that suits you better. Easy dog. Yeah. <laughs> There's easy dogs that don't have these types of fears and don't need yeah. all this work and are just natural and ready to go. We're just slightly mm-hmm. fearful. Like if you just want a little project, we can find you that too, right? Right. But- exactly. <laughs> yeah. But the other thing that you have down in here that we didn't really mm-hmm. talk about is medication. Uh, Medication. Yes. I don't have the luxury of medication where I am. I don't have the luxury that the shelter does not have a vet on staff to get these dogs medication. We would have to load them in a van, put them in a crate, drag them into a vet clinic, have them examined and get the medication. Honestly, it's not even something I thought about until it, it social media like a lot mentioned about it. I have never had to use medication with one of these dogs. And I know people are like, well, but wouldn't that kind of break the ice and kind of make them this whole process easier? And my answer is no, not really, because I'm changing the brain's chemicals by doing the rehab. And it's not with fake things. We There's very little, if you look up the actual studies and how much knowledge there is about how these medications affect dogs, it's almost non-existent. How do we know if the dog is feeling better or not? How do we know, like, if that trazodone, it might be sedating the dog, but what is the dog actually feeling and thinking? I've seen trazodone make a lot of dogs spooky 
and growly. If I had a dog with anxiety, I might consider like CBD or Xanax. Honestly, I've, I've not needed it. And I don't say that to like brag, right? It's not like, oh, I don't need medication. Just think about what, is it really helping the dog? I know of a rescue in California that brings up dogs from Mexico and they give dogs extremely high doses of prazodone. And what's the one that starts with a C? Clonopin? Clonidine? Maybe. Sure. Dogs can't learn when they're drugged out of their minds like that. It might lessen the symptoms, but are we really curing anything? How many times does the human medical profession do that too, right? Here, take these drugs. You'll just stop behaving in the way we don't like. I want to actually change how that dog feels about things. I want to change their body chemistry, get them out and moving. I mean, it does a world of good and I think actually being on medication and even having to go to the vet so early in this process could backfire. How many applications do we get, Becky, who's the people's dogs are on some kind of behavior medicine and they say it does no good whatsoever? So many. 80%? At least. Yeah. I'll say too, I rescued a feral dog um, from the desert in California uh, years ago now, and we spent weeks... (laughs) trying to trap her. So she'd been running feral in the community for at least 18 months. She had feeding stations, like homes that she would visit, were a couple of people that she visited regularly that she would take food from a a very extended hand and a body turned away, right? Like not facing her. And she would take it and run. We had spent, we, we know, kind of early on in the process we we were a little impatient and we thought maybe we could outsmart her. And so <laughs> we we knew the body language, right? And we got her eating from our hand pretty quickly in the parking lot. And we gave her some Xanax, thought this will make it easier. She'll be calm. We'll be able to get the leash on. Well, I will tell you, <laughs> as soon as that dog, as soon as her eyelids did the little sag, felt the Xanax start hitting her system, she bolted. Mm. And we spent probably, it was a few more weeks that we spent going back and forth, working with the community um, before we were able to trap her. But she never again, even remotely considered taking food from our hands. Oh my gosh, she knew. So we, she knew. And we broke a tremendous amount of trust that day by trying to drug a feral dog, thinking that we could outsmart her. And what she learned was that when she took food from us, it put her in danger as she lost her senses. Yeah. Caution needs to be used in these situations because you can break more trust and do almost more harm long-term. We may have been able to leash her if we had just done that for a couple of days. Yeah. But instead we were impatient and we wanted it right that night. We didn't want to have to stay over and, you know, we had to travel. It was a whole thing. Then we prolonged the stress yeah. for the dog. Right. And, and, and it, and it impacted her rehab because then we also had to rehabilitate her. And that had been our first real memorable interaction. Yeah. Super <laughs> interesting though. Yeah. Never underestimate the intelligence of these dogs. Right. They're so smart. I learned a valuable lesson that day trying to drug a feral dog, if for no other reason than 
as she tottered out of sight into right. the desert, into the night full of predators, I knew I had removed her senses to respond to danger. Oh gosh. Yeah. Oh my and we and and we ended up like we rescued her and she was pregnant. <laughs> and we adopted out her puppies and right. she chose to she chose to let us help her yeah. because she knew she needed help. Yeah. Because she was pregnant. Otherwise I don't think we would have caught her. But she very much chose. She knew what was happening when she went in that trap. Yeah. And the medication, I think you're totally right. You know, it takes away their, they know they don't feel right on it. That's right. And they, and if you don't feel with it and you have your senses about you, you feel put in danger. And if, if you as a human have ever been in a situation where you felt like you were in danger and you imagine going through that, but then also losing your coordination and your focus and your eyesight, like how much more traumatic that would all be and how much greater that fear would be. It's a lot. It's a lot for these dogs. I think sometimes. Yeah. I'm trying to think like if I've ever had, I mean, I've hurt my back and I've had to take muscle relaxers and stuff, but I take them at night because I know I can't function. <laughs> exactly. But if I was out in the wild or out in some place that I felt like I was in danger, I wouldn't want my senses to be. I mean, it's just like using any kind of recreational drugs, right? You want to do that in a safe environment instead. Yes. Of- and it's still, you have that element of choice that the dogs don't. And they perceive that we put them in more danger. Difficult to overcome that in a relationship that breaks a lot of trust. True. It'd be like being roofied or something, right? Right. But they, but they remember it in most cases with most of these drugs that we use, especially like the trazodone and you remember everything. Mm -hmm. You just don't have your full faculties. I think this all goes back to the lack of resources that are out there that actually work for these dogs. There's a lot of fluff out there, let's say that really doesn't work. People try the fluff because it's all over the place. And the message is that it's, it's going to work and it's the only way. And if you don't do it this way, you're actually hurting your dog. And so there's a lot of emotional pull with using, let's just, these kind of ways that appeal to our emotions as humans and how we want to help our dogs. Well, it doesn't work with kids either. And they don't feel safe. The methods that we want to work, they don't really work. And then people think there's no help for their dog. I mean, I've had people like cry because they thought their dog would never be able to like leave the house because that's what they've been told by everyone else that medication was the only way. Um, It's really sad. It's just a lack of knowledge. Yeah. The way I train dogs, like my clients don't actually need that many lessons because they're learning about the nature of the dog, how to relate to the dog and how to make the dog feel safe. Once they understand that they can apply that and they don't need a lot of coaching. I don't mind if they want a lot of coaching, make no mistake about it. Dog medication is a multi, multi million dollar business. I think it was, how much was it when I found hundreds of millions of dollars a year? I'm not saying everyone's doing it to make money, just be aware of what is actually going on. I'm not saying I don't 
wouldn't ever use it. I have used it when I did have to take dogs to the vet. I would use drugs because it's easier on my vet and it's easier on the dog. They did just fine. And I always tested the medication a couple days before we went to the vet. So I was sure it was going to do the right thing and not make the dog feel worse. I'm not saying I wouldn't do it ever, but in general, I think we need to learn more about dogs and how to communicate with them and push the medication less. I think it's a real sign of our shortcoming of our knowledge about dogs, honestly. How's that for an answer? My little soapbox. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I feel like if you can help a dog naturally, why wouldn't you? Yeah. Like you're saying with food, right? If, if all the interactions that take place involve food, and then we try to discontinue the food and change the contract without consent from both parties, you can have more of a setback at that point. And I think that using medications long-term as opposed to situational things like you're describing where it's short-term stresses, you would build up to a dog being able to visit a vet ideally without medication long-term. Correct. But if they need to see a vet in the short term and you haven't established that relationship and trust and, and rehab, and you choose a short-term solution that makes it easier for everyone. Yes. Rely on these things long-term. And we think that that alone is going to help the dog. I mean, this could be a whole nother podcast in itself. We'll just stop there. We can continue this on another day. <laughs> I mean, it's, it is a fascinating thing to like, kind of think about. And how did we get here? Thank you so much for doing our, my podcast with me, Becky. Of course, Julie, thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Thank you all so much for listening. I love rehabbing fearful and feral dogs and it's something I specialized in for 14 years. If you would like to learn more about how I do this and how to help these dogs, there are several ways you can do this. You can go to my website, fearfuldogtraining.com or if you prefer, feraldogtraining.com. And on that page, if you scroll down, it will take you to the online learning options and a link to any workshops I'm teaching. I'm teaching a workshop in May at the shelter in Las Vegas, New Mexico. And we will be working live and in person with fearful and feral dogs in the shelter population. I also have a workshop coming up in June in Boise, Idaho. I will probably be doing another workshop in the fall in Virginia with my friend Angela Luke hosting. I also am starting a subscription service so that we can explore the topics we just scratched the surface on today in much more depth. My next podcast is going to be with Debbie Johnson, who has been trapping dogs for a very long time and as a wealth of knowledge. Keep an eye out for that coming up. Please check out my website, fearfuldogtraining.com. Thank you.